Well, congregation, if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 62. Psalm 62. This Lord's Day, we will consider all 12 verses of this psalm. Psalm 62, hear once again the word of the Lord. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than a vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. Once again, May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word and now to the preaching of His Word. Well, saints of God, greetings once again in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and greetings from the saints at Sentinella Baptist Church. As you know, we pray for you quite often and count it a joy to serve Christ with you and with our association of like-minded churches of common confession. Times like these where I can come and minister to you to help out not only your church, but your pastor is a reminder of the Lord's faithfulness and what a joy it is to serve Christ together. This Lord's Day, I'd like us to turn our attention to the 62nd Psalm as we worship the Lord by preaching and hearing his word. Psalm 62 This is a portion of Scripture 
that teaches, that teaches us much concerning who God is and, and why the believer must wait on the Lord at all times, but especially in times of trouble. Here under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David gives us a personal profession of his faith in the Lord and mentions how he must continue, how he must strive to wait on the Lord and him alone. Likewise, we see in verses 8 through 12, he gives a call for all people, that is everyone, everywhere, to trust the Lord as he alone is sufficient. David finds his sufficiency in God alone. And now he he gives this proclamation of his faith, if you will, by way of this psalm. In other words, there is not only a, a clear expression of the psalmist's faith here this morning, but also an expressed desire for man to find refuge in God. To experience salvation found only in Christ and to rejoice and the hope that is found in him. So we will consider this passage this morning as we examine the word of God. Let's go ahead and get started and jump right in. Begin with the first, the expression of the psalmist's faith. Notice verses 1 and 2, and then again verses 5 and 6. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. And again, congregation, verse 5 and 6, My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. When you, when you look at the historicity of the psalm, if you will, there's not much known about this psalm. There's not much known about Psalm 62. There are a handful of psalms in the Psalter where we don't really have much background or historical context, which we know is quite helpful when seeking to understand the Word of God. But with this psalm, I don't think it's necessary that we have a bunch of historical background and context to what the psalmist is saying. Because I believe the contents we have in, ver- in, in verses 1 through 12 in this 60 second psalm are quite clear to everyone reading and hearing the word of the Lord. We have here plainly a man that confesses great confidence in God. It's the, the simplest way to put this. We have a man confessing great confidence in his creator. And he begins stating this great confidence by confessing that his soul silently waits for God. By this, the psalmist means that his innermost self is at a place where he is by faith in utter submission to God. He has relinquished all authority to God. He has come to God and said, you are mine and I am yours. Knowing that God is in control knowing that he is indeed sovereign over all things, that he is the one that declares the end from the beginning, that is in control of everything in between. You see, this is important for the psalmist to make this confession concerning his soul, because the soul of man, as you know, may be at times quite weary, 
maybe at times quite thirsty. And for many, the souls of men are dying. For many, the souls of men are dying as we speak. Yet for the man who has faith in the Lord, for the people of God, our soul must continually seek Him. As in Him our souls find rest, and in Him our souls are indeed satisfied. Notice He does not merely say that His body is silently waiting, while His heart does whatever He desires. If this was the case, he would be walking in sin. He doesn't write, the psalmist, that he merely knows what he needs to be doing. He doesn't merely write that he knows he needs to be waiting on the Lord. He knows where his soul should be. He knows what his enemies desire of him. He doesn't merely confess that. He doesn't even say that he's doing this because God says so. He says, truly, my soul silently waits for God. His eyes are fixed on the Lord. He is looking to Him alone. And in doing so, He is doing precisely what God calls of each and every one of us. And it is God alone where His soul finds rest. This is why He says, truly, As he opens this psalm, I know it reads different in the New American Standard, the ESV, but if you read the New King James, it says, Truly, first and foremost, this is where my soul is. He is making it clear in this profession of his faith, the psalmist is, that his soul is not divided. That his soul is with God alone. Truly, only, it is you alone that I come to. It's not as though David is trying to convince himself or the hearer that he is really trusting the Lord. It's actually David communicating to us that his trust is in the Lord and him alone. Truly, only you, my soul waits. The dependence here, congregation, is one of wisdom. It is one of wisdom. There were many times in the life of David where his soul did not wait patiently on the Lord. There are times in the life of David, actually, like many of us, where his soul was far from the Lord. Here he knows. He seeks safety for his soul, thereby properly applying the knowledge of God the very truth that has already been revealed to him. And I'll elaborate on what I mean here in a moment, but notice that this text says that he doesn't just wait on the Lord by faith, but does so in a particular manner. The way in which he waits, the psalmist waits, is worth noting, congregation. Here the soul of our brother waits silently for God alone. Yes, this too speaks to the state of his soul. This is the correct and God-honoring way that the child of God ought to wait on the Lord. In silence. 
waiting on the Lord in the right way, in the correct manner. And by this, waiting on the Lord in silence, the word of God really means primarily two things here. First and foremost, we wait on the Lord in humble submission, in humility, not in an arrogant manner, not in a haughty manner, not in a manner where you think that you are deserving of everything in the sun, under the sun, but in a manner that knows that you are deserving of nothing, in a manner that knows approaching God in humility is the very means by which you are exalted, as James would tell us. And it's not only a humble submission, but it's also a prayerful submission. To wait on the Lord in silence, to silently wait on the Lord, is to wait on Him prayerfully. A silent soul. Let me elaborate just a little bit. In submission, a silent soul is indeed silent because it is focused on the will of the Lord. It is focused on listening to the word of the Lord. And it is focused on applying the word of the Lord by faith. See, there's not much talking going on here, congregation. Like Just like right now, not everyone's sitting here chatting and talking to one another. You can do that. It would be disorderly, sinful, but it is something you can do. But we know we are to wait on the Lord reverently, silently, in humility, with ears that are willing to hear, with a mind that's willing to focus and receive the word of the Lord, and with a heart that desires to go and live out our faith. This must start in humble submission to God's word. This is what it means for our soul to silently wait on the Lord. I'd liken a silent soul, beloved, to a virtuous woman. There's similarities there that I I think you just can't get past. You think of the, the virtuous woman identified in the 31st proverb. What does the word of God say concerning the virtuous woman? that she's concerned with honoring the Lord in all that she does. She keeps busy with the work of the Lord. She's not an idle woman. She keeps busy with the work of the Lord. She is constantly trusting Him, looking and depending upon Him. She's very cautious about what she says, what comes out of her mouth. As she knows, there's wisdom in guarding the tongue. And as a result, the woman in the 31st proverb is tremendously blessed. Tremendously blessed. Her character is not one of a loud, boisterous, arrogant person, but one of humility and grace. Likewise, beloved, the silent soul is concerned with honoring the Lord. Therefore, the one with the silent soul casts themselves upon the Lord, like the virtuous woman does. Indeed, like I said before, our souls may be weary. Beloved, we may find ourselves attracted, attached to things that God hates and injure our souls. We must know such things bring no glory to the name of the Lord. There is no honor in a soul that always 
wonders. That is never satisfied. But one that silently waits on the Lord, surely he will be blessed, beloved. The silent soul desires to keep busy with the things of the Lord. The silent soul is not one that just sits around, twiddles their thumbs and does nothing, but they want to be busy with the right things. Like the virtuous woman, the silent soul knows the dangers of idleness. (laughs) To sit around all day and do nothing while danger abounds is foolish, to say the least. Yet many are guilty of this, even Christians, even believers. Yet the silent soul that seeks shelter in the Lord will find it by way of his law, by way of his direction. God gives us much to meditate, contemplate, and consider when we come to him by faith and rest in him. In humble submission, congregation. But secondly, the silent soul is a prayerful soul. The silent soul is not busy talking um, recklessly or being arrogant because he has already humbled himself, she has already humbled herself, and now is busy going to the Lord in prayer. Because as we humble ourselves, as we are, as we are confronted with who we are and our needs, the Christian knows that he must be on his knees in prayer. The silent soul is a prayerful soul. The silent soul knows the means of grace that is prayer. And I can really prove this in a kind of a slam dunk way. How many of the psalms are how many of the psalms are actual prayers? Time and time again we see David waiting on the Lord. He waits on the Lord in prayer. Well, David, why why is your soul silently waiting on the Lord? Well, because I'm always in prayer. That's probably what his answer would be. And it's true because the scriptures affirm this. A silent soul, a soul that is waiting on the Lord silently is one that waits on the Lord prayerfully. And the wisdom of the Lord leads the psalmist to confess who God is, as his soul is waiting on the Lord patiently. In other words, even in the process of waiting on the Lord, we learn much about the Lord. Notice, again, verses 1 and 2. Truly my soul waits silently for God. And here, here, here's what, listen to what he says. From him comes my salvation. He is... He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. As the psalmist pens this beautiful testimony of his faith, he mentions much about who God is. It's almost as though he is learning about God as he is casting his soul upon him. And of course he is. His grounded faith leads him to express the majesty of our Lord. 
Time will fail me to deal with all of the attributes of God in this psalm, or even half of them really, so I've just picked a few that have popped out to me in my time of devotion here. First, the psalmist confesses that God is God alone. Truly my soul silently waits for God. All else has failed the psalmist. Man have failed him time and time again. He has failed himself. He has put his strength and his own might and his own power to no avail. Now he confesses that his soul, that his being, that his faith is to be in God and him alone. Truly, he alone is worthy. It is God that remains faithful. Secondly, he speaks of the immutability of God. If you notice verse 12 in our passage, he says, Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. But notice what he says right before this. God has spoken once. Twice I have heard this. The psalmist remembers that God, the very God he has casted his soul upon, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord does not change, and that is made evident in his word. You see, the psalmist has time and time again been confronted with who God is, and each and every time it is the exact same God revealing himself the exact same way. He has said this in his word, and his word remains true. This is not only something that David has to remind himself, but he, because he forgets, because we forget that God is faithful, because we forget that God has spoken, because we forget what God has done. It's not only something that he needs to remind himself, but we too must remind ourselves that the Lord does not change. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever, and for that reason alone, He is worthy of our worship, our adoration, and to be the object of our faith. Thirdly, he he confesses that the Lord is his rock. The Lord is our rock. Rock of ages, cleft for me. He is the one that we lean on at all times. He is sure, steadfast, Immovable. He's the foundation of the church. It's the very foundation that this church, that my church, that every church proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is built upon. There is no foundation like our God. This is confessed in the psalmist's faith. He is our salvation. It is not just from Him we obtain salvation. It is not just that we confess that every good thing is given from above, including the life that we have received in Christ. It's that we confess that God alone is our salvation. 
He is the source of life. He is the one we find our identity in. It is in Him we find purpose. It is in Him we are spared eternal judgment. And lastly, the psalmist says He is our defense. He is our defense. Surely He has learned this by now. After much trial and tribulation, that there is only one that can protect the king. And it is a king of kings. He's our defender. He's perfect and just in all of his ways. And he will certainly protect us from the evil of this world as we come to him by faith. He's our defender, our defense. These are all things that that the psalmist says about our Lord that are necessary to know when waiting on Him. These are the very things we forget about our God. And finally, we see the psalmist mention briefly another reason that we must run to the Lord, namely the schemes of man. Surely God alone is sufficient, and we are to run to Him because He is good and does good, as the psalmist says in another place. We do not need the reality of sin to show us the goodness of God. God is good, was good prior to sin, in other words. But the fact remains, as we consider the sinfulness of man and how his schemes against his creator are blatant in his works, oftentimes even directed at the people of God, the man of God knows and sees wisdom in running to the Lord. Notice verses 3 through 4 and 9 through 10. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. And again in verses 9 through 10, Surely men of low degree are a vapor, men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your hearts, your heart on them. As David is accustomed to doing, he considers his adversaries in light of the state of his own soul. And as he considers his adversaries, as as he considers the enemies of God, in the same way we consider the enemies of God, he concludes a few things. First, the sinfulness of and the hypocrisy of the enemies of God that is evident by their works. Verses 3 through 4. As David has this inner dialogue in this psalm, as he's reflecting on his own faith, he considers his fellow image bearers of God and how many of them have served to bring about the judgment of God upon their souls. Their ongoing hatred toward the God that David loves, is evident by what they say and do. Their acts of hatred both to God and to His people will bring forth their inevitable demise. And the psalmist ponders this truth 
for a moment. He does so by positing somewhat of a rhetorical question. How much longer will you seek to do evil against me? And I imagine he asks this with a bit of comfort and relief, personally speaking, as he knows God is is on his side, therefore how can he lose? Yet at the same time, he asks this question genuinely as one who knows the feeble and, and futile efforts of man. Their works of evil, of darkness against the king have made them like a building ready to crumble, like a house built on sand, prepared to be sent to their destruction at any moment, like a flickering candle ready to die. And this is really the case for all of those outside of Christ. This isn't just those during the time of David that waged war against God, that waged war against Israel. No, this is really a description of all those who are outside of Christ. And as I was reading this, this, I was thinking about how this observation that David makes here concerning the souls of men, concerning the works of evil, really apply to all those who are dead in their sin. You know, the Bible refers to those who are apart from Christ as enemies of God, meaning this passage speaks to more than just the men in David's day. They lie with their lips, they bless with their mouth, they curse inwardly. This should sound like Romans chapter 3, when the apostle gives a bit of a, a discourse, if you will, on total depravity in verses, 19, or verses 9 through 18. This is the condition of natural man after the fall. All of us speak lies, don't love God like we ought to, and even at times inwardly curse God. But the difference between the psalmist and his enemies is that the psalmist finds that his trust is placed in the Lord, that he has been forgiven. Their spiritual condition is not the same. Sin has made the enemies of God weak and prepared to fall for good. That is what sin made Adam to be, is it not? Adam was created upright, strong, able to obey the Lord with a mutable righteousness. But sin enters in and and Adam's frail. He has an expiration date. He's no longer righteous. Again, it brings us to this state of frailty where just a moment, in just a moment, we can lose everything and gain nothing. That is sin. It's made us enemies of God, prepared to fall for good. This is what sin makes you and I, beloved. We didn't want God. We were on a road to hell. But by his grace, we have been called to him and given eternal life. Once enemies, we are now friends. And how is this possible? Well, it's possible because of the greater David, the one who makes it possible for us and all who stand before him even now. And he does so by taking upon himself our flesh, living a holy, righteous life of waiting on the Lord, of trusting the Lord in submission, in humility, 
only to die the very death that we deserve. Why? So that you and I may live. It is Christ who is David's hope, and he is our hope. And it's because of Christ, it is because the hope that we have in the Lord, that I believe David seems to pity his enemies here even to a degree. It's almost like David is seeing the consequences of sin and where sin has brought these fellow image bearers of God and asks himself, why must you continue on? This will take you to your own destruction. Secondly, and surely in light of the sinfulness of man, he sees also the insufficiency of man. Not just the sinfulness of man, but the the psalmist sees the insufficiency of man. Surely men of low degree are a vapor, men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Like the reflection concerning man's sin, verses 9 and 10 in this psalm really serve to show us how inadequate man is in light of their sinful nature. And he, he, he speaks of all man here, of, of every man here, right? Men of low degree. He says men of low degree are a vapor. This speaks to the man who is unstable in their ways. Why is man naturally unstable in their ways? Because of the effects of sin. This is one who is prone to vanity. A wax nose, if you will, molding himself one way, one day and another the next. Such men are insufficient to offer themselves a life of consistency and safety, let alone others. We can't trust man because they change. It's that simple. It's not just because they're sinners, it's because they change. Or men of high degree are a lie, as the psalmist says. This, this speaks to those who are born ahead in life, maybe with more means, or maybe they work uh, to uh, get elevated to a higher status, either politically or socially. Again, these two are, are insufficient as we consider the hope that we need, that all mankind needs. Such lives of high degree are deceiving and ultimately can't help one's soul. They may help you get past some difficulties in life. They may mask the spiritual needs you may have, but they cannot help your soul pursuing such things. The point here is that David makes us, uh, makes it clear that the soul is only truly satisfied in the Lord. When we look outside him, we will be disappointed. Even when we look to the best thing outside of him, as it were. As we have considered the psalmist's profession of faith, or his profession of a silent soul, as I've mentioned a few times here, let us now close this Lord's Day with the benefits that come from waiting on the Lord. There are several benefits that the believer receives as a result of waiting on the Lord, and I believe we see some of them in this psalm. 
this Lord's Day. First, the silent soul finds that their faith is grounded. And this is a sure benefit for the child of God. As we wait on the Lord silently, trusting in Him alone, congregation, we find that we have a grounded faith. Not perfect, not without blemish, but grounded. This is a faith that is not greatly influenced or affected by that which is of the world or that which is not of God. This is a faith that is not focused on what the world has going on. As the believer knows, the world is passing away and the things that matter are found in the will of the Lord. This is not to be oblivious of the things of the common kingdom. But this is to be not overly concerned of such things. What would make me conclude that when we wait on the Lord... Our faith is grounded, you may ask. Well, because when we are waiting on the Lord, our attention is on Him. And when our attention is turned to Him, congregation, nothing really matters. When we're waiting on the Lord, our eyes are fixed to Him. Consider Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. When we're considering Jesus, we're not sitting around considering everything else. We're not busy concerning ourselves with everything under the sun. We are, like, we are likened to a large boat in the ocean with an anchor firmly planted when we have our eyes on the Lord. We can liken it to a boat in the middle of the ocean with an anchor firmly planted when our eyes are fixed on Christ. And I say this because you think of, you think of the, uh, such a boat, and what do you have in the middle of the ocean? Well, you have violent waves, you have storms, you have wind. But with the anchor, you have a grounded boat. It's not to say that we are unaffected by the waves or the storms, however severe they may be. It's to say that even in the midst of such times, We find our hope in God alone. This is what it means to have a grounded faith, beloved. And when we wait on the Lord silently, our faith is grounded. In addition, waiting on the Lord keeps our faith grounded, as when we wait, we do so with an understanding of His special providence. See, when we're waiting on the Lord, it's a matter of providence. God providing for us. The great thing about being a Christian is God provides for us in a special way. We forget that. If we remember that God provides for us in a special way, I think we look at life completely different. I could probably preach another sermon another time on that. But I, I truly do believe that. We wait on the Lord, and in doing so, we have a grounded faith when we understand that He loves us in a particular manner. To say this plainly, God cares for his church in a special way and shows this via providence. I know you know this, congregation, but it's worth repeating. And as we both wait and receive his good providence, 
like a uh, child on Christmas Day when you're waiting for mom and dad to put all the presents under the tree and then you get to open them. You not only have that joy in anticipating the providence, but you also have the blessings of seeing what he has in store for you as you receive it by faith. Well, in doing so, our faith has increased time and time again. And I would say again, prayer is a perfect way to illustrate this. Prayer, prayer is the perfect way to illustrate the Christian's need to wait on the Lord and to see the benefits of waiting on the Lord. Till we take our petitions to the Lord, knowing that he will turn a gracious ear towards us and hear our supplications. That special providence, by the way. How can we be sure that God does hear our supplications and will turn a gracious ear towards us because we belong to him? Secondly, the silent soul finds their expectation of comfort, strength, and direction not in man but in God alone. Again, my soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. The psalmist has been let down by man. It's so evident as we read this text. Even the best of men, time after time, will let us down. I I even tell that to my wife. I'm not saying I'm the best of men, but I tell that to my wife. Wife, I'll let you down. There's going to be a time. I pray that you would forgive me. And likewise, even the best of men will let us down. One of the the best pieces of advice that I received in in entering into the ministry from Pastor Markadon was to not be surprised when and if men fail you. Sinners sin. And we are dealing with other sinners, of course. We are to be quick to forgive. We are to be quick to put our trust in the Lord. This is not to be crass towards image bearers of God, but again, to show both the inadequacy and the inability of man. When we think that men are going to be adequate enough to fulfill and supply our needs, we will find out that we are mistaken. Likewise, is the case with inability. God did not create us to find hope in ourselves or in one another, but in Him. And the silent soul, beloved, finds exactly this. They find their hope in the Lord. Finds that the Lord is good, that His burden is light, Oh, and that he is everything that we need. The comfort that we would expect to find, beloved, is found in him. The strength that we would expect to find is found in him, one that does not fail. And the direction we would expect to find is found in him, namely the direction to eternal life as we walk on this earth as pilgrims. You look to man, you will find weakness. You will find discomfort eventually. And if you look to man, you will find direction to hell. You will not find the direction to eternity. 
Therefore, we conclude this morning with the silent soul finding their refuge in God. A silent soul finds their refuge in God. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. He is our shelter, our protection from the evil of this world and from the schemes of Satan. In congregation, he is our refuge this Lord's Day and every Lord's Day for that matter. As finding refuge in God means finding safety in him. And that's precisely what we do each and every Lord's Day as we gather together in his name, as we gather together for worship, as we gather together. We find safety in him. There's really just two points of contemplation that I have for you, and I think you'd know why. The first is when waiting on the Lord, because clearly we will need to wait on the Lord. We do need to wait on the Lord when waiting on him. Remember who he is. Remember you are not waiting on man. You are, not, you are not waiting on a being that is altogether insufficient or unable. You are waiting on the one who has your life in his hand, has declared the end from the beginning. You are waiting on one who loves you, who has shown his love for you and will continue to love you. You know what the great thing about waiting on the Lord in this context is? As you continue to wait on him more and more, he continues to love on you more and more. And you grow in his love. And you grow confident to start off a psalm by saying, truly, my soul is silently waiting on the Lord. Second point of contemplation when waiting on the Lord, remember what he has done. We are like the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20 who are ready to receive the law. Maybe some of them were ready to receive the law. But what does God first say? Remember the Lord your God. Remember the one who has brought you out of Egypt, who has saved your soul, who has preserved your life. When we are waiting on the Lord, we must remember what God has done for us in Christ. He has saved you, congregation, that you may wait on him and seek to glorify him in all that you do. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You are altogether holy. You are altogether lovely. You are good and you do good. Oh, how we thank you, Lord, for your word. 
As we thank you, Lord, for the Lord's Day, we ask that you would bless your word to our hearts. Direct our steps by your spirit, that in all that we do, we would bring honor to your holy name. I pray as the mercies of Christ have gone forth, otherwise hell-bound sinners would find hope, their only hope in him. As the psalmist has made clear to us, help outside of God is a facade, is not there, is not real. And why would we run anywhere when we have everything we need in him? We thank you again this Lord's Day. May it be a blessing to our souls. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.